Hello, and welcome to the Untangled Faith Podcast in honor of the Christmas season and in order to allow myself a much needed break. I'm sharing my most downloaded podcasts of the year throughout this month. For those of you who are new to the podcast, this may be the first time you have listened to this episode. This episode I'm sharing today, I initially only shared with my Patreon community, but I decided to share it publicly last spring. It's a conversation with Pete Singer, the executive director of Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment. He talked about third-party assessments and what he would say to those who say some folks are overly sensitive to abuse. You will love this conversation I had with Pete. What if you were in a position of leadership at your church or organization and someone came to you and said they had been harmed or abused in some way by someone associated with this organization? Would you know what to do? Today, my guest shares from his expertise some things you should do and some things you should definitely not do. I'm Amy Fritz, and you're listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned with their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all that is not good or true, this is the place for you. Hey listeners, I recorded this conversation with Pete Singer, Executive Director of Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment, and shared it with my patrons about three months ago. I actually shared part of this conversation, I think. As I've been thinking, I just found it so valuable, I decided to make it available here on the main podcast feed, the entire conversation with Pete on this main feed for everyone. I think it's worth a listen, even if you've already heard it. We talk about the process and value of third-party investigations. Here's my conversation with Pete Singer. If there's somebody that raises a question about something, a lot of times leaders think, you know, we aren't sure what's going on. We're not sure how to handle it. We know this is a good person, you know, and they just let it be. But if you don't actually look into it, you cannot give the gift of exoneration to someone. It it, it does go both ways. and. One, you can't give the gift of exoneration. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two, we also have to remember that if the person should not be exonerated, if the person has done it, they haven't just been grooming the person or people that they directly abused. Yeah. They've been grooming the entire community, often with a focus on leadership. And so that's going to skew the way that people, including leadership, may view that person. Uh, somebody has said that perpetrators put a lot of effort into being the type of person who would never do that. Yeah, that's the way it works. That's the only reason why it works. Um, what would you say are some misconceptions when it comes to, you know, we can maybe piggyback on what you just said, misconceptions about the kind of person that might be problematic? What What, what do people take for granted? I think people take for granted that they're going to be able to pick out the person. I, I think people think that it's going to be this scary looking unkempt guy in a white van. Okay. And it's usually not. I think another thing that people often have a misconception about, and, and in my mind, this is incredibly scary. 
we think that we'll notice a change in our kids. Mm. We often don't. Sometimes there are clear indicators that something is off, but sometimes we get nothing. Mm. And, and that's not because we're not observant parents. It, it may be because the child does not yet comprehend what has been done to them. Mm-hmm. It may be because the perpetrator has coached the child or directed the child to behave in a certain way. It may be because the child is doing everything they can to hide it mm-hmm. and is succeeding because they're ashamed, because they're afraid, because they're confused. And so the misconception that you'll be able to spot the perpetrator, the misconception that you'll be able to spot it if anything's going on. I think these are two of the big misconceptions. Tell me about the organization that says, we have some really great leaders and we we don't need outside help I, I've hired, you know, our, our elder board is full of business leaders and lawyers. And, you know, if we hear of an allegation that is connected to this, to our church or our organization, we'll be fine. Uh, we'll just set up a committee. How would you respond to that? We know how effective church committees can be. <laughs> um, I think it's really important to know, logistically speaking, most people on that elder board would not have been trained to do an investigation. I don't know for sure, you know, what type of misconduct that particular church might be dealing with. Would they be dealing with an allegation of sexual misconduct towards a minor? Would they be dealing with an allegation of clergy sexual abuse? Would they be dealing with an allegation of sexual harassment? Would they be dealing with... Uh, how did leadership respond to a peer-on-peer situation? Mm. What would they be looking at and what makes them think that they have the training and the experience to understand the dynamics of the theology of power? Yeah. The psychology of power, the ins and outs of child development, of brain development, the neuroscience the different things that research shows us about both behavior of perpetrators and uh, behavior of people who have been abused, who've been the subject of misconduct, to know that I'm not looking just for one set of behaviors. Yeah. Because there is no one set of behaviors, but to have the knowledge and the expertise to look for something broader, to recognize that it's going to be contextualized, that it's going to be nuanced. Are they going to have a clear understanding of trauma and trauma-informed practice? Mm. Do they even have training and experience on a definition of trauma? Or do they just think that trauma is something that's really, really bad that happens to you? If you think that that's all that trauma is, then you don't understand trauma. Wow. It is far, far deeper than that. Yeah. Far more pervasive than that and far more complex than that. Do you see generational issues with this? Sometimes people are like, this is the way Uncle Bob always has been. Or 
people are just super sensitive and easily offended. How how would you respond to that pushback? I would say that people today, I think, are more sensitive than they used to be. I had cancer several years ago. I'm more sensitive to any indications of cancer than I used to be. Yeah. That's not because I'm wrong to be more sensitive. It's because now I understand more than I used to. And because I understand more, yes, I am more sensitive about that. So being more sensitive is not necessarily a bad thing. Being more sensitive might actually be a product of having more knowledge. Mm. Being more sensitive might actually be a product of now that we can talk about this, we realize that it's not. I mean, like in the 1960s, there there was actually accepted academic work, including in the fields of mental health, that said maybe, maybe 2% of kids at most, 1%, 2% of kids are sexually abused. And it might not be that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. It might not be that harmful. There was accepted academic mental health work saying that in the 1960s. We know a little bit more now than we did then. Yeah. We've realized, oh, wait a minute. It's closer to 20% of kids are sexually assaulted by the time they're 18 maybe higher. We realize now actually that is a big deal because we kind of did this thing called the ACEs study. Mm. And that let us know this has a big impact on people. Yeah. So we know more. And so we're more sensitive because we know how important it is now. Yeah. So that sensitive person shouldn't be seen as a problem. They should be seen as a really valuable member. Yeah. I'll give you the names of a few people who were probably oversensitive relative to a lot of the other people in their environment. A guy by the name of Jeremiah. A guy by the name of Isaiah. Hmm. A guy by the name of Daniel. A guy by the name of Malachi. They're also called prophets. We can't just write off a person who seems oversensitive they might actually be seeing something we're missing. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to the question of people feeling like they can investigate themselves. What I have seen, and you can tell me if this resonates or it doesn't, is if someone doesn't have, at the very least, a procedure already set in place for how they will handle something, oftentimes you will default, I would default to the thing that is easier for me or that costs me the least amount. It's really important that we not investigate matters ourselves in part because of that skill issue. But I'll also tell you, I go to a church and if there were an allegation that came up in my church, there's no way I'd be involved in investigating it. Even though you know a lot about investigations. I mean, I'm the executive director of Grace. I've been involved in a couple. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't touch it because I'm in that person's, within that person's sphere of influence. I've been groomed. Yeah. If they go to my church, I've been groomed. And if I've been groomed, I can't investigate. Even if you were to say, I'm going to be as aware as I can be of my bias. I still can't do it. Yeah. You can't see what you can't see. Right. 
Jennifer Freed has written about betrayal blindness, and I think it is so appropriate to this conversation. Sometimes we don't want to see things, and sometimes we like consciously don't want to see things, but there's also this thing in our subconscious that says, we see it, but our subconscious says, that's danger, danger, danger. This is going to cost you something. This is going to maybe put you at risk for something that we don't want you to be at risk for. And that's one reason why like, it's great for young kids so that they can function because it is just too much for their psyche to fully process sometimes. And that's another reason why you can't always tell by a kid's behavior or words initially because their body and their subconscious is, is trying to protect them so desperately because they, their little brains and even our developed brains cannot fathom the full truth of that. Um, Have you learned much about betrayal blindness? I haven't read uh, her work extensively. I definitely love what she's written about Darvo. Yeah. And I think that that is such a helpful way for us to understand some of the dynamics, both at an organizational level and in an, in, at an individual level. Yeah. That deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. This fear of betrayal and that blindness that comes from it, though, does make perfect sense to me. And we see it a lot of times. I mean, it truly is a defense strategy sometimes to not see stuff. Um, As far as grace, do they do like organizational health things that are beyond uh, just allegations of abusive behavior? How do they work with that? Absolutely. So uh, proactive work, we have prevention work uh, where we train leadership, we train entire congregations, where we help with developing an effective policy. Um, and we can also do building walkthroughs and walkthroughs of the grounds to look for areas that perpetrators may exploit. But we do that not so that an organization can do a better job of checking off a box, not so they can put on a training video and go about doing whatever other tasks they want to do while the training video but the focus of this, of the training and, and the policy and the work that we do is tied back to the culture of the organization and tied back to our identity in Christ. Mm. Because we don't do this work. None of us should do this work to mark off a box. This is because of who we are in Christ. Jeremiah, one of those sensitive people that I mentioned, yes, wrote about a king who was not serving God, that he oppressed people, and he didn't uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. And he says, not that that was a bad thing, he says that in so doing, he chose not to know God. He then writes about Josiah, who was a relatively good king. And he writes about Josiah that Josiah did defend the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? It's not about something that we should do. It's Mm -hmm. not about a checklist. It's about knowing God. And it's about who we are. And so we work in our training to help uh, churches and ministries understand that. 
We also do real-time consultations uh, where we work with, um, in 2021, we had over 500 churches reach out to us. Holy moly. <laughs> about just a real-time situation. We just got an allegation. We just found out that the person uh, teaching our Sunday school class did this 15 years ago, even though there wasn't uh, uh, anything on their record. They were never charged, but yet we know that this that they did this. What should we do? And we try and tie that back when we have that real-time consultation with them. We tie it back to, let's understand what Scripture really says. Let's understand what Scripture says about the shepherd laying down his life to protect the sheep. Let's understand what Scripture says about sheep in wolves' clothing. Mm. Let's understand the things that Jesus said about religious leaders who were taking advantage of people and pretending to be spiritual. Let's look at what Scripture says about Hophni and Phineas, everybody's mm. two favorite characters from the Bible, <laughs> who are called worthless men mm. because they use their position as spiritual leaders to have sex with women. Mm. They're called worthless men for that. So let's take a look at what Scripture says. And then we also help them understand an idea of what is trauma. And what is trauma-informed practice? SAMHSA has six key principles of trauma-informed practice that we very frequently will walk a church through to understand what are those six key principles and how do they apply in church? Mm. And then when it comes to after the fact, we often will do an investigation. And when there is an identified perpetrator, typically there's also an identified action and an identified alleged victim. Mm -hmm. So uh, in that situation, we would do an investigation into what happened. But sometimes the church reaches out to us, and it's not that somebody did something to someone, but it's just a lot of people tell us it's unhealthy here. A lot of people tell us we misuse power. A lot of people tell us we don't treat women well. We don't treat kids well. We, Whatever it might be. And in those situations, we actually can do um, an organizational assessment where we look more broadly at the overall health of the church or the ministry with respect to uh, how they treat people, mm. with respect to how they use power, with respect to how they do respond when people raise concerns or disagree with authority. And so, so often in those situations, where there isn't a designated alleged perpetrator, we would do an organizational assessment. That's so interesting. How do you sell the leaders of a church on an organizational health assessment? Because if I were leading a church and somebody said, hey, I heard that Grace does these, I think I would have a tendency to feel threatened. Oh, no they're coming for me. How do you sell a place on the value of something like this? Because it sounds scary. It is scary. I mean, it's it's really scary. And to tell you the truth, I think an organizational assessment is more is scarier than an investigation. Oh, tell me about that. With an investigation, you're saying, look at that person and tell me what you find. With an assessment, 
they might be looking at me. Mm. They might be looking at the culture that I've been a part of creating. With an investigation, there's some pretty strict boundaries Yeah. about what we can look at. With an assessment, there's still our boundaries because we must stay within the scope. But those broad boundaries tend to be a bit broader. And so yeah. I personally think that an assessment is scarier than an investigation. Yeah. But um, there, it's not so much selling as much as helping the leadership understand that this truly is about who we are in Christ. Yeah. This is about how we are the hands and feet of Jesus towards somebody that's been hurt. And it would be just such a powerful thing to model for congregation to say, even as we are asking you to be introspective and to listen to the Holy Spirit, as he like prompts you about the things that you need to work on in your life, we want to model being introspective ourselves and and knowing that we aren't going to be able to see all those things ourselves and every place can grow and get better. I think a lot of times we forget um, this idea of parallel process. Parallel process says that what happens at an individual level happens at an organizational level. Mm -hmm. What happens at an organizational level happens at a community level. Because these things are going on in parallel. You can't separate out an organization's functioning from the people that are in the organization. Uh, Knight has done some research on managing secondary traumatic stress. When, uh, as part of the work of an organization, they're interacting with a lot of people who've had trauma. And then the staff help to carry some of the weight of other people's trauma. Primary tra- primary trauma is when it's our own trauma. Secondary trauma is when we are helping to carry the weight mm-hmm. of somebody else's trauma. Yeah. And what she found in her research was that if the organization doesn't take steps to help staff manage the secondary trauma that they are carrying, they will inevitably become a traumatized organization. Mm. What's happening on the individual level inevitably moves to the organizational level. It, If it's not addressed, it just will. And once that happens, as organizations, as humans in organizations, we want to put that chapter behind us, mm-hmm. right? We don't want to look at it. We want to be able to put that in our past. But if that's all we do, then what we've done is we've left a seeping wound that hasn't ever been resolved and is destined to just keep resurfacing yeah. and keep resurfacing because it's never truly been dealt with. We've just tried to put it in our past. We've tried to go around it rather than through it. Mm-hmm. I was recently talking with a church and I was so incredibly impressed with this church. The leadership of the church was meeting with us and they said, since we were founded, the person that founded us, it turns out was abusing kids. 
And ever since our founding, every few years, there's abuse. And then we think we've taken care of that, and then there's abuse. And then we think we've taken care of that, and then there's abuse. Can you help us find out what it is about our culture, mm. about us as an organization, that this keeps happening? And it was a church that didn't want to have blinders on. It was a church that realized this is deeper than one incident. We need to figure out what is it about us and how can we move to be an organization that more reflects Christ as opposed to an organization that reflects the abusive person that founded us. Wow. Yeah, that is really brave. I wish we saw more of that. I mean, it's it's really unfortunate that there would be a pattern to see. But when you can learn from your mistakes, what a huge, huge gift that is. I think of Tate's Creek with how they have dealt with two really big issues. And the second time they're like, hey, we've done this before. And we know we need to reach beyond ourselves and put this information out there. And we're doing, you know, digging into another investigation that had to be incredibly like just crushing. Like if you've already gone through something, here we go again. Yeah, It's hard when you have to go through it again. I think, I think one of the things too, is if you look at, what is publicly on on their website? Yeah, and in that report, um, we pointed out some things that could have been done better, and we pointed out some things that they did well. Mm-hmm. And along with that, Tate's Creek's response was they pointed out things we did well, but don't let that stop you from being humble because we have work that we still need to mm. do. It was a conscious choice to not focus on okay, we did some things well, so we're good. Yeah. But to say we did some things well and now we want to do even better. Yeah. And that was something that I found really impressive about the way that they handled it. I don't usually speak about specific things, but that's public yeah, knowledge. Yeah, they, they put all of their stuff out there. Yeah. When that investigation started or when they announced that that investigation was starting, they made a decision to publicly tell people our church has experienced another, we've heard some reports that some people say that they have been hurt uh, by an individual connected to an event or people at our, at our place of worship. And they made the decision to put that information out there publicly. Um, do churches generally, is that, is that like a, a typical thing people do? Was it because of the high profile nature of the alleged um, perpetrator that maybe can you speak to like, I'll speak to in general yeah, things talk, that, yeah. Things that like why would they how, name somebody or put things out there at the front and not wait for it to play out? Because I did hear some people, you know, that were friends with this alleged, the person that had the allegations against them that were like, hey, this isn't right. What if it's, what if it comes back that there's nothing to this? And why are we talking about this? Why is this put out here publicly? Sure. Yeah. I'll speak generally. And one of the things that I'll say right from the get go, is this is why you need to have a good policy, mm-hmm. right? If you have a good, strong policy that says 
If there's an allegation of sexual misconduct, this is how we will respond. Then you are just following your policy. And, and so that becomes very important because, um, a lot of times one of the things that I've, that I hear people say is, but if you say the person's name, everyone's going to think that they're guilty and you don't want everyone to assume a person is, is guilty. Yeah. You want there to be the opportunity for, um, independent investigation of a situation such as that. Mm-hmm. Ideal, I mean, when it's appropriate, uh, when it is within their purview, we would want that independent investigation to be by the authorities. Yeah. When, for whatever reason, it is not going to be investigated by the authorities because, not because people decided not to report it to the authorities, but because the authorities have said that is not something we are going to do. Yeah. Then somebody else looks into it. We want the opportunity for there to be accurate information received. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a policy that says, if an allegation is made against somebody, we're going to ask them to step away from a position. We're going to temporarily end a contract, whatever it might be. And we're going to announce those actions to the church so that they can be aware of it. Then you doing that is not a statement of guilt or innocence, mm-hmm. belief or disbelief. You are simply following your policy. Mm-hmm. And so then you, you are left with, how widely do we make known an allegation? How widely yeah. do we make known findings after an investigation? Couple of things. When you uh, make any type of an announcement, whether it's the initial allegation or the eventual findings, you are super, super focused on protecting possible victims. Yeah. You are not making an announcement that reveals the identity of somebody who does not want their identity revealed. Yeah. You are not making an announcement that provides an inordinate level of detail that could cause an alleged victim shame Mm. or loss of standing in the community. So you're very careful. You're not just broadcasting absolutely everything because that's going to be more information than is needed. You want to be trustworthy and transparent. Yeah. But you don't need to broadcast every last detail because that can be harmful, especially to a possible victim. And I would think if you're not done with the investigation, it can also harm that possible outcome of being able to do interviews and get independent information from people. Yeah, it can. Yeah. Generally, the more public exposure that an allegation may have, the more public the announcement. This is totally a generality. Sure. If it's going to be in the newspaper tomorrow anyway, what's the harm in announcing it tonight? You're also looking at what are the safety implications? Are people currently at risk? Because safety is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. And so we, we need to be mindful of the potential risk to people. Uh, and that comes into our decision of how, uh, broadly to make the announcement. Uh, is the person responsible for watching kids? 
either through a formal position at the church, through a volunteer position at the church, or because they have kids over to their house all the time, whatever it might be. There are factors like that that you're looking at that may impact safety. Mm-hmm. You're considering other survivors in the church that maybe weren't a part of this particular allegation, but yet still are going to feel the impact and the weight of this thing as it unfolds. Yeah. If I were at a church and somebody came forward bravely to share something that they had experienced and I didn't have any idea what to do, I would call y'all. I would call Grace before well, I would say if there was like an illegal some thing that happened, I'd call the police first, right? Definitely. The police are going to investigate the crimes that may or may not have happened. Grace can investigate other things that are happening, like situationally or like your organization systems and all those things. But if I, if someone were to call you, and this is just in general, like up front and say, like, what do I do? Like, do we tell people right away there was an allegation of something or do we have a few conversations first? Your thought on that? Too many variables to say for sure. Yeah. Um, it it may be that the police actually want you to hold off. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. um, you don't want to interfere with a police investigation. And so if sure. police or child protection is asking you to hold off. We've had situations where the police have uh, either... Uh, for example, asked us to hold off on starting an investigation until they felt that they were ready for us to do that or have asked the church to hold off on an announcement. Um, We definitely do not want to do anything that would interfere with a police investigation. So that may that may impact the timing of both an announcement and also talking to the alleged perpetrator. Mm -hmm. There are other factors as well. How immediate is the risk to other people? Is the alleged perpetrator open to talking or are they having a lot of delays in their availability mm-hmm. and where it seems like, oh, I can't do it next week or the week after, but maybe next month sometime mm-hmm. I'm available to talk. I'm traveling oh, for the I next nine months. I know we were months. scheduled, but I have to cancel. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. So in, in general, like if, if there's going to be something publicly announced, there's been a lot of factors that are weighed. Let's talk about false accusations. How often is that? How do they look different in ways that you can explain? I mean, I don't want you to give away the trade secrets of grace, being able to <laughs> differentiate what they're looking at. But what are some things that we can know about that? It's going to set our minds at ease. Like, what if I'm like, I have, I'm afraid my kids are going to be like accused of something. Like my boys are just good kids. And what, what if somebody just accuses and then everyone has to just believe that they're bad? Like explain this to us. It's really hard to navigate that in part, in part, it's kind of how grace goes about assessing things, but in part, it's also not wanting to announce the things that we know so that alleged perpetrators might be able to manipulate yep. that. Yeah. But so things that you look at is you look at, are there, are there any things that seem to corroborate a person's story, whether it would be an email, whether it would be an apology, things along those lines that may seem to corroborate what a person has said. Probably more important is to recognize what things do not indicate mm-hmm. that it's a false report. A delayed disclosure mm-hmm. does not indicate it's a false report because delayed disclosures are the norm. Okay. Yeah. 
And so sometimes people have said, well, wouldn't they have told us right away? Actually, no, uh, probably not. Delayed disclosures are the norm. A delayed disclosure does not reduce credibility. A story that expands a little with time is not in and of itself something that indicates a false report. Because often that first disclosure is testing the waters. Mm-hmm. Often that first disclosure is seeing, can I trust you? I don't know if I can trust you. So I'm going to start by giving you the light version of what happened. Mm. And I'm going to see how you respond to the light version before I give you the full version. And so having some changes over time is not in and of itself something that decreases credibility. We need to look at a lot of other factors along with that. Having some details off Mm. can sometimes uh, occur. For example, documented abuse occurred in one particular situation, and this was not in a grace matter. It was uh, in a public record matter uh, where law enforcement was involved. And it's years after the fact, and the victim is is saying, I know it happened at this location. Mm. And I know it happened when I was this many years old. They proved that the abuse did occur. They know that it occurred. But the mall or whatever the location was, I think it was a mall, but now I can't remember for certain, where they said that the abuse occurred wasn't built until two years after Mm. the age that he said it occurred. Okay. And so sometimes the way our minds work and, and the way that memory functions, we can get some details wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was actually a fairly major detail. Yeah. So it's not just a minor detail that might be wrong. And it's important to be able to tease through all of that so that a discrepancy is not just, oh, discrepancies don't matter. So we throw them aside. No, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. But again, that goes to why do we need somebody who's trained in this yeah. work so that they can determine how much weight to give a discrepancy like that? Yeah. How much uh, weight to give these other factors? How many investigators do you have that work with Grace generally? It varies kind of with the ebb and mm-hmm. flow. In general, we have usually about 10 to 15 investigators that are working with Grace. Okay. Right now, at this point, we're doing roughly 15 to 20 investigations a year. Um, one of the changes that we've implemented this year is uh, we've streamlined our process um, and have a full-time lead investigator now, uh, a lead institutional response specialist, because she may also be doing an assessment, not just an investigation. Okay. And so then she takes point on a lot of these matters, as well as uh, Jim, who's our director of institutional response. And then often that'll be teamed with somebody who is working with us on more of a contract basis. It's sure. most of the people that contract with us are like contracting with us on multiple matters. So it's, it's not, Hey, let's draw somebody's name out of it. Yeah. Cause hat. they've been trained. Yeah. And they've been trained. Have the skills that you're looking for. Right. Yeah. We have to believe that we trust them. And we have to believe that their approach is consistent with Grace's approach. They're doing the, you know, they these have... are people who are typically, so for the most part, attorneys and uh, former law enforcement are the most common yeah. uh, people doing investigations for us. So people who are attorneys, uh, people who were the head of the sex crimes unit in mm-hmm. their city, 
uh, or in their department, um, people who uh, worked within the sex crimes unit or, or had other roles. So they are coming in with quite a bit of experience. Uh, sometimes it's somebody who is a theologian and then a mm -hmm. theologian would be uh, paired with a lawyer or a theologian would be paired with um, a former law enforcement officer so that we can bring in. We really want a multidisciplinary yeah. team look at this because the church uh, indeed does want to know how credible is this allegation. Yeah. But that isn't just what the church needs to know. The church also needs to know how did we do in responding? Mm -hmm. The church also needs to know what's the Bible got to say about this? And the church also needs to understand trauma and trauma-informed practice so that they can assess how they responded in light of that and chart their course going forward mm -hmm. in light of what does scripture say? What are these trauma-informed principles? That is lovely. I love that. I love that you have that breadth of knowledge that you're leaning on and, and, and life experiences that just brings such a great value to people that are putting, you know, investing in something that's really a huge deal. The ramifications are so big with these like investigations and organizational assessments. It's just, I'm so grateful to hear of like the robust work that is being done. We also continue looking for people who are skilled and competent on the investigation front. So whether that may be an attorney, whether that may be uh, somebody who's been in law enforcement and has that type of a background, but who also get it. Yeah. Who understand the dynamics, not just of a, of abuse, but abuse in our faith communities. Yeah. Who understand how this relates to who we are in Christ. Mm -hmm. Who understand that spiritual impact. And when we're asking to to bring together all those qualifications, the pool of people gets actually pretty small. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's on the investigation side and on the uh, training and prevention side as well. And, and I want to be clear that, as I'm saying, these are the type of people we need. Yeah. We are preparing. Um, I, I anticipate that we'll be hiring in 2023, but we are not actively hiring today. Yeah. Those are uh, just some of the qualifications that you get this, yeah. that you understand this. Good ability to write is thrown in there oh, yeah. as well. You got to write reports. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, we just recently submitted a report to a church that was over 80 pages. And you have to be able to write the details of what happened as well as then that analysis yeah. of how does this relate to scripture and how does this relate to those six principles of trauma-informed practice? Yeah. So you have to be pretty strongly grounded in them yeah. in order to write that report. Well, I have to say, I feel so good about the investment our family has made in supporting Grace. Um, I just feel, it just feels like such a better use of our money right now than capital campaigns and <laughs> for church buildings. I and I know there are a lot of people that are listening that you know, they, they are generous people. They are in between churches for one reason or another, or they're just feeling sort of like, I don't know if I trust this place or this place, but if you're looking for a place to invest, I would say Grace is a fantastic place doing great work to, you, um, just to help the kingdom of God and to show people 
that they are loved and cared for and seen. And we want our, our faith communities to be healthy and safe. We want them to get better. We want ourselves to get better. I'm so thankful for your time. Was there anything that you wanted to say that I haven't asked you about? I, I think one of the things that um, I want to say is just how uh, much I appreciate the work of everyone that is in this space, uh, the work that you're doing, uh, that you've done in part by uh, helping to raise money for for Grace and definitely appreciate that. But beyond that, the work that you are doing in raising awareness Mm -hmm. and in raising awareness, not just raising people's knowledge, but raising their ability to act. Yeah. And as you raise their ability to act, you are raising their ability to be the voices that are needed to create safer churches and safer ministries. So thank you for that. And thank you to, my goodness, all the people at Grace on the board and the staff, Mike, Jim, Zane, Emily, Maureen, Mm -hmm. Susie, Jackie, Jessa, Kate. Uh, all the, all the people at Grace, both as employees and contractors, uh, who have done such incredible work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be one thing people can pray for us. Uh, this is heavy work at times. I'm so grateful for this conversation with Pete Singer. I loved hearing more about the value of third-party investigations and some of the factors that play into decisions different organizations make in regard to how much and when they share what is happening with ongoing investigations. You can check out the resources that Grace offers by going to netgrace.org. That's net, N-E-T, netgrace.org. I'll make sure there is a link in the show notes. If you're on social media, I would love to keep this conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm Faith Untangled on Twitter. The Untangled Faith podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. This podcast is made possible by the support of my Patreon community. A special thanks to producers Michelle Pionic, Phil and Susan Perdue, Pam Forsyth, and Shelley Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.